Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. Today we're continuing on with the four crafts, or as I like to call it, the four, four crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. We'll be on pages 142 to 151, and we're going to be talking about Christ and the priest crafters. So this program is for Wednesday, October 19th, 2022, starting at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, I try to get a program out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And our allotted time is 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. We can go into overdrive if we have any callers. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty much just going to be a podcast. Although, I will pay attention to the studio. And if I do have any callers, uh, during the reading portion of the program, I will take them off air for questions or comments. And then after the reading portion of the program, if anybody wants to come on and uh, ask any questions or make any comments about theology or what we're reading tonight, the phone number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. There's also a chat available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally mormon. Well, I'm not sure, like... I tried to make it into Zion's Redemption Radio Network and it screwed a bunch of stuff up. So then I put it back to Fundamentally Mormon. And now I think the podcast is Zion's Redemption Radio Network. And the internet link is blogtalkradio.com forward slash Fundamentally Mormon. So I think I screwed things up. Anyway, um... If you are interested in this and uh, following me personally, um, my Facebook is facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. And uh, you can message me and I check my message uh, requests periodically, like a couple of times a month. So I might not get you right away, but if you... Uh, actually have a question you're not just saying hi i'll actually respond to you so all right let's get into the reading for today the coming of the messiah in the meridian of time should have been considered by all mankind as the greatest event in the history of the world but he was a thorn in the side of the wicked rulers and was an object of contempt and hatred among many of the people as well, 
who were the first to point the finger of scorn at him and defame his character and deny his teachings. It was the priests, the very persons who should have been the first to proclaim their support and joy that he had come. See, like religious people, a lot of them will feign their spirituality and their religion, but they're not interested in anything but their fame, their uh, popularity, and what they can get from other people. You know, and part of the reason why Jesus says, depart from me, you never knew me, um, is that these people, like they may have done a bunch of religious stuff, but they never really got to know him. And they were doing it for selfish reasons, selfish motives. So anyway, continuing on with the reading. Why did Jesus receive such ridicule, persecution, and even death at the hands of religious people? To understand this, we need to look into the life and beliefs of their leaders in that day. The foremost religious leaders were the Pharisees. Zondervans gives an, uh, an accurate description of them and their superficial deeds. In the Gospels, it is clear that Jesus was not attacking a straw man. His criticism of the Pharisees may be regarded as appropriate and justified. These criticisms center on the areas of teaching and practice. In the first instance, and here it is primarily the Pharisaic scribes that are in view, the content of the oral law, or the Mishnah, was called into question, which, with devastating irony, Jesus proclaimed, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, also Matthew chapter 15, verse 3. The traditions of men had taken the place of indeed had nullified the commandments of the word of God. Mark chapter 7 verse 8 and 13. Jesus did not question the rightful authority of these scribes. Oh, hold on here. Nor would he have questioned everything that they taught. They sit in Moses' seat, and accordingly the people should practice and observe whatsoever they tell you. Matthew chapter 23, verse 2. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Moses' seat scripture. So in the ancient synagogues, they had a place where the rabbi would sit and read from the Torah scrolls, or the Tanakh scrolls, or the Mishnah, or the different things, but they would sit down and they would read from the Torah in the seat of Moses. And then they would stand up and they would pontificate on what people needed to understand about the Torah portion that they were reading. So when they were sitting down, they would strictly read from the Torah, but then they would stand up and they would pontificate and just talk and lead people astray with all kinds of false ideas and false doctrines. So when Jesus says, 
when they sit in Moses' uh, Moses's seat, you should hear and observe whatever it is they tell you, tell you because they are reading the scripture. They're not reading, uh, they're not like going off on their different tangents and wild ideas, but then they stand up from Moses' seat and that's, that's what the synagogues, the rabbis in the synagogues would expound and talk about a bunch of different stuff. So Jesus was like, basically, if you're, if they're reading you the Torah, you need to listen to what it says and observe what God has told you through Moses and through the Torah. Anyway, all there, although there certainly are the weightier matters of the law or the Torah, not even the Pharisaic customs of tithing mint, dill, and cumin should be neglected. At the same time, much of the legal minutiae of the oral tradition constituted too difficult and unnecessary a burden which the Pharisees made no move to alleviate. Let's see here. Their apparent inability to maintain a consistency between their traditions and the written law made them, as Jesus put it, Blind leaders of the blind. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Also, Matthew chapter 23, verse 16 through 26. By the way, if you want to read along with me, there's always a link at the description, uh, in the description of the podcast or on the uh, radio program. And uh, there, there'll be a link that takes you to Tumblr and uh, you'll be able to read whatever it is that I'm reading for each of the episodes that I do. So, continuing on. Their culpability lay in the fact that they did not enter the kingdom of God, nor, what is even worse, would they, by their teachings, allow those who would enter to go in. Even more pernicious than the teachings of the Pharisees, however, was the gap between their profession and their practice. Their over-concern with externals led almost naturally to a neglect not only of the weightier parts of the law, but also to the inner man and the matters of the heart. The resultant hypocrisy Jesus described as the words of Isaiah in Mark, let's see here, about about a people who honor the Lord with their lips while their hearts are far from him. In fact, the Pharisees were intent upon cleaning the outside of the cup and plate, whereas the inside remained dirty. Matthew Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. They were like whitewashed tombs, disgusting and inner corruption. Some of this may well have been the inevitable product of the Pharisaic religion, religionism. What was 
not enviable. However, was the pride, the pride of which the Pharisees were are simultaneously guilty. Their motives. Hold on here. Their motive in holding to their observances was a wrong one. They do all their deeds to be seen of men, said Jesus. They loved the special honor that was paid to them as men who were reputedly serious about their godliness. But their pride was totally without foundation, for the truth was, as Jesus summarized it, that they preach and do not practice. Even in the Talmud, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees was exposed. They were hypocritical and lived in pretense of their righteousness, which... which was in it... it, of itself the factor of their unrighteousness. It would have been a stumbling blow for someone like Jesus to call them serpents, vipers, hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whited sepulchers, and unclean. But he went further and said they would be guilty of of persecution scourging, and murder. This was very difficult for the Pharisees to take when they thought they were the most righteous people on the earth. Jesus pronounced seven woes of condemnation on the Pharisees and said they would not escape the damnation of hell. He rebuked them with some of the most severe command, uh, commendations and curses written in the Bible. See Matthew chapter 23. The Sadducees received much condemnation too. They were different in many beliefs and from the Pharisees but we still get held held on to their pride and their status. Okay, so I'm going to re-read that last part. The Sadducees received much condemnation too. They were different in many beliefs from the Pharisees, but they still they still held on to their pride and status. In manner, the Sadducees were rather boorish, being rude to their peers as to aliens, and counting it a virtue to dispute with their teachers. They had no following among the populace, but were restricted to the well-to-do. They were more severe in judgment than the other Jews. Many, but not all, priests were Sadducees. Nearly all Sadducees, however, appeared to have been priests. 
especially of the most powerful priestly families. And that's according to Tinsdale Illustrated Bible Dictionary, volume 13, or no, volume 3, page 1368. Zondervan also described the Sadducees. The determinative trait of the Sadducean party seemed not to have been its priestly associations, as is commonly believed, but rather its aristocratic character. Accordingly, that which was common to the Sadducees was not a clerical status, but aristocratic eminence. It is natural, then, that the Sadducean circle was a very exclusive one remaining closed to the populace as a whole. Josephus stated that the only that only a small number of men knew the doctrine of the Sadducees and that these men these were men in the highest standing. And that's antiquity of uh Well it says antiquity eighteen point 1.5 I think that's Antiquity of the Jews which is Josephus's uh, book so Josephus was a general in Jerusalem in 70 AD he was born right around the time that Christ died and uh, he wrote uh, a very large volume about the history of the Jews as they were being destroyed by the Roman armies so he, I think he escaped Jerusalem. Um, he wasn't, obviously wasn't killed in Jerusalem, and he became a general uh, among the Romans. Anyway, and that the Sadducees had the confidence of the wealthy alone. Ant- Antiquities 8. 10.6, I think that's in Antiquities of the Jews. The aristocratic makeup of the Sadducees, together with their power and the Sanhedrin and their control of the high priesthood, made it inev- inevitable that their dominating interests would be political in nature. Their wealth and the position of the one on the one hand and on the other hand the fact that their power was delegate, delegated to them by the Roman occupation combined to account for this most outstanding trait of the, of the Sadducees, their rigid conversations, this conversationalism, conversation, conver, I'm sorry, conservationism, of course, was inevitably tempered by the dictates of the Romans, since their political involvements were conditioned by their vested interests in the preservation of the status quo. It followed that they pursued policies designed to appease the governing authorities of Rome. And quote Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 5, page 213 with a people of such pride and love 
and love of status and position, even Jesus could not persuade them to believe in all of the gospel. According to John, they were afraid that Jesus would cause them to lose their pleasure and treasures. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, "What What do we? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider what is that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. And this spake he, not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the, the Jews, but once but thence but went thence into a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And that's John chapter eleven verses forty seven through fifty four. The people that arose to trouble Jesus were not so much the common people, but the religious priests and the leaders. They finally got Jesus before Pilate, and when the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. John chapter 19, verse 6. Uh, 19, verse 6. After which Pilate said unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. They said they would rather have his blood be upon them and their children than to acknowledge him as their king and as their lord and king. And so it was. And thus the seeds of priestcraft were planted in the church of Christ even before the Savior's death and before his apostles had left this earth. Paul wrote, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. And all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. And he knew it would get worse after the apostles were gone. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Peter also observed, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Heresy and priestcraft arose among the time of the Church of Christ, 
was organized and they gradually and subtly infiltrated into the church until completely overtaking it. From this great and abominable mother priestcrafter spawned a thousand little priestcrafters during the next 2,000 years. And then we're we're going to, uh, since that was a shorter section, we're going to go on to the next section, which is titled, Their Creeds Were an Abomination. And we are on page 148, if you are reading along with us. Their creeds were an abomination. It is easy to understand why there was an apostasy of Christianity with over a thousand churches all claiming to be right, yet teaching different gospels. It is an indication that none of them really knew the voice of the master, since there can be only one real master and only one true true church. Ephesians chapter 4 says, One God, one faith, one baptism. You know, yet there's like thousands of different denominations, and they're like, they'll tell you, oh, well, we mostly, we believe all the same thing. It's just different worship styles. And people who say that are ignorant. They're ignorant. You know, you can have different opinions within one, under one, one roof of one church. Because they're not led by God. They're led by man who trusts in the arm of flesh the arm of the flesh of others to teach him, and also makes flesh his mind, or makes flesh his arm, which is basically they trust in their own flesh and their own logic. You know, and logic will never bring you to God. If you want to come to God in truth, you do apply logic, but then you also get revelation for yourself and confirmation of the Spirit, because the only one that matters is God, and Scripture is not for private interpretation. It belongs to God, and in order for you to get the wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and He will give it to you. He gives it to you by revelation, and by confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Continuing on with the reading, actually, it is an indication that none of them really knew the voice of the master since there can only be one real master and one true church. Such was the condition in which Joseph Smith found himself at the time he sought the God of heaven to be led out of the one, or to be led to the one true church. See, he didn't even think that there was a, that there had been an apostasy. He just wanted to know which church he should go to because he couldn't decide for himself because he couldn't, he just didn't understand. Like, okay, well, these guys talk about this and these guys say these guys are wrong and these guys say these guys are wrong and they all fight amongst themselves, you know, but it says one God, one faith, one baptism and I'm just confused because I'm 14 years old and I don't know what to do, but like I think that these things are serious, so I'm going to ask God, as the scriptures say, you know, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and I'm going to go find out what he has to say. 
because Joseph Smith understood that the only interpretation that mattered was the father's. Continuing on with the reading, he received a revelation from God about which he wrote, quote, I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all was all the sex was right and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. And that's in Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith History. Two important points should be emphasized here. Number one, the creeds of Christianity had been corrupted through nearly 2,000 years of manhandling. That which had been true was now false, and modern Christianity was worthless. A religion whose principles led men away from God is an abomination in his sight. Secondly, the ministers who were relig- who used religion to make money are corrupt. Their religion has become a business. Their lips speak the nice things about God, but their hearts are not devoted to him. Such priestcraft is defined in the Book of Mormon. Behold, priestcrafters or priestcrafts are that which men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Second Nephi chapter 26, verse 29. There are four main conditions of priestcraft which make it an abomination. Number one, the, preach, the preacher makes himself appear to be a light to the world and he puts himself between man and God. Yep. So a true prophet will teach the people how to come into the presence of God and he will step aside and point towards God and, and point towards the way, right? But, like, false prophets will stand in front of God and they will say, follow me and I'll lead you to God. That's a huge difference. Number two, religion becomes a tool for money-making with the gospel as the merchandise. Yep. So, back in the early days of the Restoration, they actually talked about there will come a time when we don't need you to pay tithing. Because it wasn't about money-making. But then, uh, Heber J. Grant got his little greedy claws and everything, and it became about money-making. So, one of the things that uh, I have, that I'm critical about the church is where where are your soup kitchens? Where are your homeless shelters? Like, you might have bishop storehouses to help people out who are members of the congregation, who have a place to live, and all of that, but, like, where are your soup, kitchen, soup kitchens? The, the LDS church has literally hundreds of billions of dollars in accounts, investments, and even hundreds and hundreds of billions more in uh, in assets. But they don't have soup kitchens or homeless shelters. Didn't Jesus say that you'll have the poor always among you? You know, you, and you should take care of them. 
But see, those things aren't money-making um, ventures. In fact, if it's not money-making or money-producing, like they just cut it out. Like you used to be able to have oil to be anointed by in your washings and your anointings before you get your endowments. Or if you're doing proxy work for the dead, you'd have these things, but you don't have it anymore. It costs money. They would rather use water for sacrament than wine because wine costs money. And I know what you might think, you know, well, Jesus said, actually, Jesus didn't say. He did not ever say to use water. What he said, because they were being poisoned by the wine that they were buying from the Gentiles to do sacrament, that they were told, um, you shall not partake of wine or strong drink, which is whiskey or like harder alcohol, fermented alcohol, unless you make it new among you. So you shouldn't use that for sacrament unless you make it new among you. Well, what make what new? Wine or strong drink. But the, the LDS Church now says, oh, it says here in this this doctrine and covenants revelation that we should use water instead of wine. And you go and re- you read the Revelation. I believe it's DNC section one t- uh, one twenty nine or twenty nine. No, it's got to be twenty nine. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Whatever one it is, you go read the Revelation. It does not ever mention water. Yet Bruce Sarah McConkie felt felt like perfectly fine just writing that up in the uh, in the scripture heading. But it's not there. Number three, ministers love praise. Oh, you know what? I got to say something. So the LPS church didn't stop using wine when, when they were being poisoned. When they were being poisoned. They continued using wine, wine and strong drink long after that. And they slowly phased out the wine among the congregations, but the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve would continue using wine for sacrament meetings amongst themselves. And over time, they even got rid of it. Now, I've personally received revelation that it is not a sin to drink alcohol, it is a sin to be a drunkard. The word of wisdom was not given by way of commandment, but as a word of wisdom. And I was told that when I begin to feel the effects of the alcohol, to put it down and drink something else. It's not a sin to use alcohol for your sacrament. And there's some symbolic, there's a symbolic nature to it that I won't get into today, but it's there. Continuing on, ministers love praise. Their ego is built up faster in religious marketing than any other profession because they think they are so holy. And they get prideful, too. They get very, very, very prideful. It's hard not to do, actually, when everybody's, like, lifting you up because you're 
you know, you're uh, you're doing a good job as a preacher. You know, I, it's just it's it's uh, easy to see that there's a pitfall there. Anyway, continuing on, number four, priestcraft is wickedness because it turns people away from the whole truth and from eternal life. It is interesting to note that the ministers of priestcraft today preach about the power of God and the miracles that he can do, but yet they don't have enough influence with God for him to provide them with the means to live so they can sell the gospel. George Albert Smith commented, quote, We have been the subject of a vile scandal simply because our religious views are different from those of the hireling clergy who occupy the pulpits of Christendom. We taught that men should preach the gospel without purse or script and preach it freely, and that men who depended on a congregation for a salary which to obtain his black coat and fit out was ready to denounce preaching without person script as a heresy. Why? Because it would reduce him to the necessity of going to some useful calling instead of making merchandise of the gospel, which God has made free. It endangers his bread and butter and thus priestcraft raised a constant howl. And that's General of Discourses, volume 11, page 179. Even if making money for preaching was not objectionable enough, ministers have learned it is even more profitable for them to preach only what the people want to hear. As Henry W. Nasbitt observed, in fact, they have become money-making institutions. Ministers have become professionals. They preach for money and for divine hire. They are more content to ask the congregation what they shall preach than to stand valiantly for the truth as preached by Jesus Christ and his apostles. And as recorded in the book, which from first to last they profess to reverence and sustain. Journal of Discourses, Volume 26, page 237. Moses Thatcher noticed the same condition. Read the recent articles published in magazines and newspapers respecting the reason why 33 and a third percent of the 63 millions of people in this country do not attend church, and some of them will say it's because the ministers of the various denominations have departed from the doctrines of Jesus Christ. The churches are are made gorgeous by the display of their rich ta- trappings. Their pews are sumptuous to the highest degree, and when communica- uh, communicants lease those pews, They lease them with the understanding that the ministers whom they hire for money and buy with price shall not say anything that will offend the ear of the purchaser. And that's Collier's um, Discourses, Volume 2, page 316. A great deal of persecution that Joseph Smith received when he restored the gospel came from the ministers and preachers the very men who preached about the love of God 
and the love of all fellow men, if they were ever truly righteous men, they would never think of persecuting someone else for their religious views. However, since those professors were all corrupt and their hearts were far from God, then it is understandable that they would use every device and means to protect their money-making craft. And who was it that stirred up these ministers to anger and persecution and promote priestcrafts among them? According to John Whitmer, the adversary of all righteousness being crafty and beguiled the people and stirred them up against to anger against the word spoken and has blinded their eyes and is leading them down to darkness, misery, and woe. This generation abounds in ignorance, superstition, selfishness, idolatry, and priestcraft, for this generation is truly led by priests, even the hireling priests, whose God is the substance of this world's, world's goods which waxeth old and is beginning to fade away, who look for their hire every one from his quarter. And that's from the book of John Whitmer, uh, page two. So today false priests abound. The gospel is being torn apart by deceivers and false prophets who set up their priestcrafts among the children of God. No wonder the people are groping in every direction. It is truly a day of testing. So that is the end of the reading for today. If anybody has any questions or comments, they can call in. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. And it looks like we don't have anybody calling in today, which is normal. That is fine with me. So we'll leave the lines open for just a minute, uh, see if anybody wants to win. And while we are waiting for anybody to call in, we'll listen to the Book of Pontiel. It's about 15 minutes long. And then uh, I'll keep an eye on that uh, studio. Once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Here's the Book of Pontiel. The Book of Pontiel. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Pontiel is his name. Wherefore, the sword is that of the four winds used by Moses, in the destruction of those wicked Anakim who infested the land. Wherefore this shall be the preface of his book, which shall come forth by the hand of the Almighty, and woe be unto him who shall mock this work, for it has been set forth by the hand of God. Wherefore it is the record of Paniel as he and his people travelled are traveled from the land of Assyria northward, even unto the land of Magog. Wherefore, they are of my people Israel, 
and Paniel shall stand with his posterity upon Mount Zion and be counted with the gods. For such he hath entered through his faithfulness by the grace of Christ, even Adam God, looking forward unto his son Jesus and admonishing his own sons in righteousness, wearing the tunic of the holy priesthood and traveling through the land of Danta. This is the word of the Lord unto thee, my son Samuel, and also Yaroslav. Be patient and sober, looking forward unto this account, which shall come forth in mine own due time, even so. Amen. The words of Paniel, or the first, uh, or first Paniel, chapter 1, verse 1. Behold, my name is Paniel, the son of Abizel, son of Beresek, son of Isaac, son of Amos the prophet, who was also the father of Isaiah the prophet. Wherefore I am compiling this record of my father, and also preparing the book that mine sons may write. Verse 2. And I do write it in Reformed Egyptian, as was the custom among the school of the prophets in the land of Jerusalem. Verse 3. And it being in more pure language, having been reformed back to the best of our knowledge to conform with the language of our fathers, as found upon the pillars of Enoch. Verse 4. And I, Paniel, do raise my hands and confess my sins before the gods of heaven, but I am a sinful man. Verse 5. And I am true, I truly lament my sins that I am cast down into the depths of humility, even before my Elohim. Verse 6. And I was a prisoner in everlasting chains, save for mine faith and belief that my Savior would come, not only to me, but also to my people. Verse 7. Wherefore, I have been lifted up to see the ineffable glory of God's kingdom and the taste of his goodness and mercy. And great and powerful is my God, for he hath willed it. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass that I arose early in the morning and climbed Mount Medela in the land of Assyria, even unto the summit thereof. Verse 2. And there an angel of the Lord spoke with me from behind the veil, and saith, verse 3, My fellow servant, this day hath the Lord called thee up unto this place by the whisperings of his Spirit, that you might be his messenger unto the far places, even unto the wandering tribes of Israel, who hath in the past been carried off for their own good, and that of their posterity. Verse 4. Therefore, praise the Lord God of hosts, the Almighty, for thus I was sent from his presence to tell thee. Verse 5. Wherefore, being in astonishment at the words of the angel, I remained upon the mount and built an altar according to the direction found in the law and praise of the Lord as I was instructed. Verse 6. And he heard the voice of the Lord call me by name, 
in the night, saying, Paniel, Israel hath provoked me to anger, wherefore I have led her off by the neck. And thou hast never at any time seen the land of Jerusalem, nor thy father before me, before thee. But this is according to my design, for behold, look in yonder heavens and see the stars, if thou can number them. Verse 7. Israel shall live in one house, like unto a canopy of heaven, but she shall not return into the land of Jerusalem, nor shall her sons consider it, for it is the land of death and judgment. But I shall make it, make for her a new Jerusalem, which shall be the land of life and mercy. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord continued with me most of the night and unfolded many mysteries unto me. Verse 2. And the Lord saith, There are many heavens and many degrees. And I have made mine elect children a degree above the angels in authority. Verse 3. Wherefore, call them forth with mine ineffable names, and according to the signs and patterns of the priesthood, and surely they will obey thee. Verse 4. Now I, Paniel, said, O Lord, mine Father in heaven, shall I live to see the erection of the holy, thy holy temple, whereby I may fully be endowed, and my children also? And the Lord said, saith, Verse 5, Thou shalt receive thine endowments upon the mountain tops. If ye remain steadfast in my law, ye shall even have a blessing at mine hand. Verse 6, For ye must have faith not only in the coming of mine son to the people, but also in mine coming unto thee to redeem thee. Verse 7, And this is the temple of God. And I, Paniel, looked, and behold, the vision was opened up before mine eyes, and I shall recount it. Chapter 4, verse 1. I saw a court full of the beings of light. The walls thereof seemed to be made of bright gold, and the height thereof exceedingly great. Verse 2. Also the ground seemed to be made of precious stones, and these beings were continually singing praises unto the Lord of glory. Verse 3. And the voice of the Lord saith, This is the court of the priests of Aaron, who are eunuchs before me. Therefore, come forth and see greater hidden things. Verse 4. Behold, I was then brought to the gate between the two pillars, which are keywords and signs. And the angel with me gave three knocks upon the right one. Verse 5. And the guardian of the door saith, All ye Aaronic priests have heard the ringing of the keyword, and do ye have the report before the Lord? Verse 6. And I heard one say, He is a just man, and passeth the ordinances of our order, and can have half the key, but the other half has not been revealed. Verse 7. The guardian then saith, he shall receive it. And a token and a key were administered. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came to pass that he looked upon the left, and a key was given. 
and he looked upon the gate, and a key was given. And the Spirit ushered me through into the holy place. Verse 2. And now I, Paniel, did perceive that this was indeed the heavenly temple from which the Lord of hosts did send forth his decrees. Verse 3. For behold, when the gate did open, the light was so brilliant that it made all else look as darkness, and it was only opened but a small portion. Verse 4. And I was taken down this hall of light until I came to a grand council room with many other rooms pertaining to the ordinances of the house of the Lord. Verse 5. Wherefore I saw the altar of incense, where upon the prayers, the prayers of the saints are continually ascending up through the bell to the Lord of hosts. Verse 6. And I saw many brethren in the robes of the priesthood, but I did also notice that there were many more women than men, verse 7, and that the women were worshipping under veils of many different colors, singing in tongues and praising the Lord of glory, chapter 6, verse 1. Wherefore I raised up my hands, wherefore I raised my hands up and prayed, saying, O Father, that I could only be counted worthy to be among these here praising thy name forever. Verse 2. And the voice of the Lord saith, Thou knowest not what thou sayest. For behold, there is a level more glorious and powerful than this. Verse 3. For this place which thou hast entered is the Melchizedek level, but thou shalt be permitted, if faithful, to see the patriarchal level which is full of the mysteries of the Elohim, verse 4. And the angels are not permitted to see it, because they have made limitations in their minds, attempting to bind me, the Lord of hosts, down from eternal progression, for they know me not, verse 5. Now I was permitted to see the veil of the temple, and how the signs thereof shone with light and glory, and did make such an impression upon my mind that I cannot forget them. And I know all truth is one, and that the left arm of the law leads to eternal glory. Verse 6. And the vision was ended, and I and said I, Cursed is he that attempteth to bind the Lord, for he doth not know the God which he doth worship. And spiritually minded, and the spiritually minded shall inherit eternal life. Verse 7. For what profiteth the judgment and mercy of the two priesthoods if they have not the honor of searching out knowledge and wisdom on all matters? For this is the honor of kings, to know and exercise truth, which is the honor and the fullness of the priesthood, even that patriarchal priesthood of the Father which the angels have shut out from their own minds. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now do I know my, now do I know mine Savior shall come to me personally if I press forward without wavering. Verse 2. Even the Son of Jehovah, even or he who is in the Garden of Eden, shall come and anoint me if I am faithful. And also the Son of the Son of Jehovah shall come to my people of the lost tribes of Israel. 
Of this I bear a particular testimony. Verse 3. And oh, what ecstasy doth fill me with, doth, or this doth fill me with. To know that God ruleth in the heavens with the scepter of power, and that the King of glory is mindful of me. Verse 4. Who am simply a sinful outcast of Israel, whose fathers have paid tribute to the Assyrian kings as serfs upon the land. Verse 5. And I, just a lowly shepherd who walk up in a mountaintop and exercise the faith in the God of my fathers and show these things. Oh, what a merciful God is the God of Israel. Verse 6. And now I will compile unto this book a more particular account of my fathers, of how my fathers came to this place and how some of my people have rebelled against Assyria, calling themselves the sons of Isaac, verse 7, and how they have migrated into the east and have wandered from time to time with the Medes, and how they are wander a wandering people going to and fro in the earth, and how some have also gone into the northern countries. Thus I end mine own story for a time. And that is the book of Poniel. back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lickenwalter. <clears throat> Today we're going to be reading a book called The Final Prophet. It's not one of the normal books that I read, but it's really interesting and I wanted to share it with everyone. But uh, I'm not going to be doing a reader program on this one. We're just going to read it. Um, you can read it for free online, and I'll put the link in the, uh, the description of this video. But before we get into this, I want to tell you why I'm reading this book. So in 2014... I had a man who flew out from Philadelphia and he wanted me to baptize him. And he was the first of all the people that I had baptized as part of doing this ministry. So we took him down to, I picked him up at the airport with my wife and kids, and we took him down to the Jordan River, and we found a place where the water was pretty swift, but deep enough to uh, to baptize him. 
and it was pretty cold, even though I think it was it was August. Anyway, so we both stood in the swift water of the Jordan River, and I baptized him into the current. And then afterwards, we were drying off, sitting at the picnic table, and I said, why why did you want me to baptize you? Like, I talked to him before that, but I never asked him why. And as we're sitting there, he tells me that I fit the description of the final prophet. And I thought that was interesting. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he told me, well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says these things about the final prophet. And the prophet of Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls actually talked about you. And you fit the description of the final prophet. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, part of it was my red beard, he said. Um, and then just my lifestyle and the things that I've done and how things have been in my life. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. And anyway, so we, he continued on with me for about a week and a half. And we actually went to uh, Kevin Kraut's camp out, which if you know, you know. But uh, after about a week, I took him to the airport and uh, and he flew away. <laughs> Never saw him again. Last I heard, he was in Israel. I don't know what he's doing in Israel, but that's where God wanted him to be. And I know that God has chess pieces all over the map of this earth and he's got his servants where he needs his servants to be so anyway after that I went and I started looking up red beard final prophet and most of the stuff that I found was that Muhammad had a red beard <laughs> and they called him the final prophet and I thought well that's interesting but I continued to look and look and look and I I found this book using the internet. It wasn't easy to find. Because most of the stuff about the final prophet that has a red beard talks about Muhammad. And I'm not Muhammad, so... Anyway, this book I found online. And I was amazed by it. And I actually did cover it on the Kingdom of God or Nothing radio podcast. Radio, internet radio show and podcast. But I don't think I've done that since I had to revamp and do this new program. Another reason why I found it really interesting is because, well, for those of you who know my history... Um, my grandparents served seven missions for the LDS church, but my mom was really inactive, and I eventually became a Baptist and completely rejected Joseph Smith and the Restoration. But in 1995, as I was laying on the top bunk 
at my in my bed in the dorms at Job Corps in Clearfield, Utah, where I was getting training to become a diesel mechanic. I was laying there one evening, and I think it was either a Sunday or a Monday. Actually, I think it was a Sunday. Actually, I know it was a Sunday because we were hanging out in the room and a bunch of us were talking and my friends were like, hey, let's go down to the cafeteria and get food. And I was like, oh, I'll just, I'm going to stay here. So they left the dorm and I was all by myself. And I'm laying on the top bunk looking at the ceiling. And, excuse me. And uh, all of a sudden, I was caught up in the spirit. Now, this had happened to me before, and I never control when this happens. I don't even know when it's going to happen. When it happens, all of a sudden, I'm out of my body, and I am going to a place. Because God has something to show me. And so I was like, and I always enjoy it, because my body ever since I was young, is full of pain. But when God takes me up in the spirit, I don't feel the density of my body anymore, and I don't feel the pain of my body anymore. And I enjoy these experiences. I wish that they happened more often. But anyway, so I'm flying between Clearfield Job Corps and the Salt Lake City Temple, at the speed of sound, maybe the speed of light, I don't know. It was really fast. Everything was flying by. And all of a sudden, I am in the bottom rooms of the Salt Lake Temple. And Jesus Christ is standing there. And he tells me to come with him. And he leads me through the Salt Lake Temple. Now, I had never been to the Salt Lake Temple before, and I saw many things in that temple. Actually, everything in that temple I had never seen before, because I had never been there before, or seen pictures of the inside or anything. So we go, and we, I follow him, and he shows me all these things and all these rooms, and we go up through the celestial room, and we go up, uh, we go down the hallway by the by the Holy of Holies in the Celestial Room and then down by the the hallway by there's an office on the south it's south of the Celestial Room and then we like go down this hallway and we go to this stairway and we go up these stairs and we go around and he shows me a council room and then he shows me like where the prophets meet and then he shows me another room and then eventually we're in this, on this stairway that goes up and around, and it is in the middle tower on the eastern side, and he leads me up to this door, which I later found out was the highest room in the temple, and he, he says, go in, and... I was like, okay. <laughs> I went in that room and it was like going into love times infinity. Like there are no words to describe 
how powerful the peace, joy, and love of God is in that place. It is almost overwhelming. Before I went in the room, as I'm standing there at the threshold of the door, well, it's not a door, it's a passageway, and there's no veil or anything, it's just open. But I looked in and I saw that there was an altar with a place where you can put your knees and a place where you can put your elbows and kind of kneel but not kneel. And it's only got one side and it faces towards the east, which would be facing the the east side of the outside of the temple, which on the other side of this is the big plaque that says House of the Lord. So, and also, if you're looking at the front of the temple on either side, the north or the south side, there are two round windows, and those windows are there to put light into that room. Now, I've looked at diagrams and a whole bunch of other stuff. They don't admit this room exists, but it's there, and you can see the windows for it. Anyway, so I'm I'm looking in, and there's like... It's just like a simple room. And I go in this room and it's like, boom, overwhelming love and just like Holy Spirit power, like, oh my gosh, ineffable, amazing. And I heard a voice. And I knew who it was. It was the voice of the Father. And he said, you will be the final prophet. And then that's all he said. And then, boom, I'm flying through, like, the speed of sound back, probably faster than the speed of sound, back to my body. And when my spirit entered my body, it was like a jolt of lightning. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what just happened? And at the time, I was a Baptist. I hated the Mormons. I thought Joseph Smith was a false prophet. It wasn't until a year later that I had a very traumatic experience and I decided to write God a letter and tell him, if you will heal me and show me the truth, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And it wasn't long after that that I met Elder Bowman and Elder King in Layton, Utah. And when I heard them teach about Joseph Smith and how he didn't know what church to join because, like, they all had good arguments, but basically, like, he couldn't figure it out. And he read in James chapter 1, verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Actually, it was his sister who showed him that scripture, and that's how he found it. He wasn't just reading through the Bible. His sister showed it to him. But anyway, but he he said, well, you know, if God says that he will give me wisdom on the matter, I will go ask him. And he went into the woods near his home. And he knelt down and he prayed and he was attacked by unseen forces.
Now I know what that was like. Because that had happened to me many times in my life. Where Satan would bind me. He would scratch me. He would bite me. He would try to suffocate me. And this type of thing, even though Joseph doesn't go into detail, I knew that this this kind of thing happened. And he called upon the name of Jesus Christ and immediately he saw a light descend from above his head descending down upon him and in the light he saw two persons whose he says his whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above him in the air the one pointed at the other and said this is my beloved son hear him when I heard that witness the Holy Spirit just it was so peaceful and so full of Holy Spirit power, I don't even know. Like, I was just blown away. And I don't know if I, I think I've heard that before, but I just, I just wasn't ready to accept it. But, like, when they told it to me, it was the first time in a long time I had felt peace. Not long before that, I had tried to commit suicide. Because I wanted just to end it all. So when I felt the spirit, I immediately recognized it. When the missionaries were there. And when they left, I went to the loft at the apartment that I was staying in behind the Layton Hills Mall. Those apartments are still there. That room still exists. And I knelt up against the bed that I was staying at my friend's house. And I asked God if Joseph was a true prophet and if the Book of Mormon was true. And when I asked in the name of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit descended up upon me like hot oil, starting at the crown of my head, flowing through my whole body like hot cleansing oil. from the head of the top of my head to the toes of my feet and as I was kneeling there in my mind's eye and in my ears I saw innumerable hosts of heaven praising God with all their might After this experience, I can never deny the reality that Joseph Smith is a true messenger of our God and his Jesus.
our Redeemer. Because of my conversion, I started going to church, but all I had was these black clothes because I was a goth. This is back in the 90s. And in fact, the first time I went into church, everybody, when I walked into the chapel, everybody stopped and they were staring at me and like you could hear a pin drop. And the missionaries ran over and they grabbed me and they like took me with them to sit down up in like, I don't know, the third bench in the front from the pulpit. And that was like, I think that was a stake, state conference, which I didn't know what that was at the time. Maybe I did. I don't know. Anyway, because my grandparents were LDS, and it's not like I hadn't been to church before. But, um, and my mom, she would, like, try to get um, welfare from the church, so we would go to church sometimes. But whenever they had stake state conferences or ward conferences like my mom would always be like and I think my grandparents did this too they'd be like oh yeah it's vacation week <laughs> we don't have to go to church like it was a duty to them they had to go my grandparents anyway well my mom too because you know she wanted that welfare food anyway so I I was baptized in 87 and, like, I was given the ironic priesthood, you know, and a lot of that had to do with my my aunt and uncle when they would take me for a couple weeks here or there. They would, like, make sure to get me ordained <laughs> or whatever, you know. Anyway, but... um. So I went to church, and because of my conversion, my friends that I was staying with, they kicked me out in the middle of winter. It didn't matter to them. Like, I thought they were my friends, you know? I almost died of hypothermia that winter. Because I was a goth, these self-righteous, over-righteous, whatever you call them, hypocrites is what I call them like nobody in the church would help me like I lost my place to live in the middle of winter and had to walk the streets for like five or six weeks from December of 96 into January of 97 because of my conversion And all I get for it is kicked out of the place that I'm staying and no help from anybody at church.
luckily the government helped me. I went to them and I was able to get an emergency food stamps card. So basically what I would do is I would go to Albertsons on Antelope Drive and Main Street in uh, Clearfield, Utah. And I would buy something I could put in the microwave across the street at 7-Eleven. And then I'd go over to 7-Eleven and they would let me cook it in the microwave. And then I would, they also gave me a bus pass at the government office. So I'd ride the bus around, you know, just to stay warm. And uh, I remember there was this green box by the Arby's and the McDonald's by... There used to be an Albertsons in the Kmart on the corner of Antelope and Gentile. Anyway, I'd go, and there was, like, multiple buses that would go there. So, like, if a bus showed up, they would stop, and then they, I guess they'd figure that you were probably looking for a different bus, and then they would leave. And But there was this green electrical box, and on, on days what, that were a little bit sunny, I would, like, lay on that box and just warm up try to get warm and then I would walk all night long because I knew if I stopped walking that I would probably die of hypothermia which I had had in the past in Boy Scouts so anyway uh, my grandparents um, my grandpa actually was laying in bed one morning and he heard a voice and the voice told him to go find me and send me on a mission. Now, I've talked about all of this in the past and this is not what this program is about, but I'll go through a really quick rundown of things that happened after that point. I was called to serve in the Georgia-Macon mission in the South, which was interesting because I was a Baptist when I was younger. Um, I got my patriarchal blessing, which says, and I give unto you the greatest gift that God has to bestow the gift of eternal life. I asked a stake president and a stake patriarch when I noticed that language. It wasn't the one that I was, not where I got the stake, uh, the patriarchal blessing, but anyway, I asked them. What does this mean? And they both said the same thing. That it means that you've had your calling and election made sure. So then I would go to God and I would be like, how is it possible that somebody like me, who was a drug addict, who was homeless, who has been in hundreds of fights, who has been severely abused and neglected, And all the things that have happened to me, how in the world is it that I just meet the missionaries like four or five months ago and I'm getting my patriarchal blessing and it says that I have been given the gift of eternal life. How is that even possible? And I would pray and I would ask God that and he told me it's not because of who you are. In this life. It's because of who you were. Before you came here. 
And then I would be like, what do you mean? And he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't say anything. Now, God has been directing me and speaking to me, and I know he lives. I know he exists, and I knew it before that, and I know it even more now. But he wouldn't give me any more information. So I studied it out. I studied everything that I could on calling elections. Which, basically, there isn't a whole lot. I mean, there's some. But, like, it's mostly speculation, you know? And Peter says that we should all make our calling election sure and I'm like well okay well how do you do that and what does that even mean right and I kept asking over the course of many years through my mission I asked after my mission I asked I was an over the road long haul truck driver for many years and I didn't really have award that I went to because one week I might be in Cincinnati on Sunday another week I might be in Denver on Sunday another week I might be in Toledo on Sunday or or, or Laredo or San Antonio or you know Ellensburg Washington or Los Angeles, California. You didn't know where I would be from one Sunday to the next. And if I was in um, Ote Mesa in Southern California and San Diego, one week I might be in Vermont next Sunday. I might be in Hamilton, Ontario or British Columbia, Canada, or Miami, Florida, or anywhere in between, anywhere in North America, because I was an over-the-road truck driver. And I hustled. And as I would drive, I would listen to audiobooks on tape, and I would listen to CDs, and I would spend my, my off time reading books. And when I was in the, the truckers' lounges, I would be talking to people, doing missionary work. And if I was stuck somewhere, I would go find some non-denominational or Baptist church or whatever, and I'd go pick a challenge to the <laughs> to the Baptist or to the Methodist or to the Lutheran or whatever and I was on fire but all those years I asked what does it mean to have your calling an election made sure and one day when I was on a load from Los An- or from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles I didn't have to be down to Los Angeles till Monday morning, and I left Salt Lake on, like, Friday, so plenty of time. 
which was fine because, you know, if I like to st- I like to stop and and if something's if I'm worrying, I'm thinking about something, I like to stop and and just read, and then I'll read whatever it was that I'm thinking about. And then I'll drive, you know, and whatever. So I'm asking God on the side of the road south of Beaver, Utah. Again, what does it mean to have your calling and election made sure? And I had been reading something, and I've been just pondering and trying to understand what this thing means. When I was caught up in the flesh, but my flesh was removed from the truck. Like, I was sitting in the passenger seat, and I had this steering wheel desk that I'd put over the the steering wheel and I'd put my scriptures on it and I'd be reading and I'd be praying I was completely removed out of my truck like my body went through the walls of that truck don't even know kind of like I think it was Peter that was taken to the Ethiopian eunuch like and then he baptized him and his body was there with him And he went down into the water and he baptized the guy and then he went back to Jerusalem in the the blink of an eye. That's how I was moving through the immensity of space and air of this earth. And I was taken so fast. Like faster than the speed of sound. It It was like lightning fast. Faster than thought. And I found myself in this place that was it was like this little valley, little valley, and there was a small creek. I don't know if it was small. It was like I don't know, fifteen, twenty feet across. Anyway, so I'm standing there and God says wash off in the creek stream river I call it a creek anyway he says wash off in the creek and I go down and I wash off and I felt the coldness of the water I felt the breeze I saw the the grass moving in the breeze and there was a lot of like grass like long prairie grass I guess and then there was sagebrush and There were trees off in the distance. You know, there was a canyon where the stream went down and off in the distance. And then there was this, what I can only describe as a cattle path. And God said, look. And I looked and he said, follow the path. And after I washed off, I got up and I followed the path and I followed it. And I climbed the beginning of these foothills and I kept following it. And there's no trees anywhere, but there's sagebrush and grass everywhere, right? And I keep on following it and I go around this cliff and I go up around this mountain. And this mountain is not huge, but anyway, I go up around, well, I guess it kind of is. It it took me quite a while to, to climb this mountain. And I went around and I stood on top of the cliff that the path went by at the bottom of the cliff and then I continued following the trail and I kept walking 
And I kept walking, and eventually I was on the top of this mountain that was this big round mountain, but it was really long. And, like, I could look down one side, and, like, it was pretty far down both sides, but, like, it was really wide. Anyway, and there's this path, and it's just right along the top of the mountain. And I continue to walk, and it keeps on gradually getting higher and higher and higher. And I continue to walk, and then I come into these pine trees. And there's trees everywhere. And I continue to walk. And like I said, this experience is taking a lot of time. But I am going to listen to God when he tells me to follow this path. And I am following it. And I walk through the woods and the trees. And up ahead, there's a clearing. And it is the top of the mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there was a small white temple. Which I was not expecting to see. And I walked up to the doors. And it said something to the effect. Now I'm doing this all by memory. I'm not reading. And I wrote all of this down. All of it's written down. Like, as soon as it happened, as soon as I was back in my truck, I wrote every detail that I could that I could remember down. And, like, it was so vivid in my mind at the time, and it still is. I can still, as I'm telling you this story, I see it still. This happened in 2003, almost 20 years ago. And I see everything that I'm telling you. I can I can tell you details. I can tell you that I smelt the sagebrush and the wind or the breeze. I can smell the pines. I can see the creek. I can hear the creek. All of this is so burned into my memory. But I'm walking up to this temple, and I get to the to where the door is of this temple. And above the door, it says house. It says house of God, or house of the Lord, or something to that effect. And there was writing on the door, and it said, enter in that you may obtain your calling and election. And there was actually a place where I could take my shoes off, and leave them there and walk in, which is what I did. And I went through the doorway and I went into this room and there was this foyer. And there was some furniture and so to the left there was a hallway. It was pretty wide, but the foyer was wider and like if you looked at the diagram of this it would be like an L I guess with a fat part at the bottom and then the hallway was the stem that goes up right so anyway and it was really really neat like 
the walls seemed to give off their own light, but there was the chandelier, and there were these white glowing stones, like the brother of Jared had, or like Noah had in the ark that lit up the inside of the ark. And the chandelier was just filled with these beautiful glowing crystal stones. Like, not glowing, but like emanating light from them. And I walked down the hallway, and there was a, I don't know, a hallway table, I guess. And on the table, there was this vase with these white roses. And the white roses gave off their own light. And it is why my favorite flower today is white roses, because of that experience. And I continued to walk down this hallway, which is probably about 15 feet long. It wasn't long, maybe 20 feet long. I get to this doorway, and it is covered by this really thick velvet-type curtain. But, like, it's not thin velvet. It's not, like, just this weird... It's not a, It's not anything I've ever seen before. This curtain was literally about six or seven inches thick. And it was hung on an iron rod with gold tips and these gold rings. And I put my hand through this curtain or veil... And I parted the veil and I went into this room and I saw a great, magnificent light on the other end of the room. I went in the room and I walked towards the light. And as I got closer to the light, and I started to come into this glory. I saw a man standing in the light. One man. And I got closer and I immediately knew exactly who it was. And I fell flat on my face before him. And he called me by name and he said, get up. And I stood up and he opened his arms to me. And I embraced him in the flesh. I embraced him. He embraced me. This was and is our Father in heaven. And I know that he lives because I have seen him face to face. And that he is not a spirit. That he has a physical, tangible body that I have felt with my own two hands. And he told me to kneel in front of him and I said, what are you doing? And he said, I am sealing you up unto myself that you may be sealed up unto eternal life. 
and I knelt before him and he placed his hands upon my head and as he began to speak light emanated from me so he has his hands on my head I have my arms folded in front of me that I'm looking down at and light is bright white light is emanating from me and it was so surprising I did not expect it and I was so distracted that I did not hear what he said he told me what he was going to do and why he was going to do it but he didn't tell me everything about that experience and he didn't I, I didn't hear what he said and I that was by design he needed to give me something he made light emanate from me and I don't know if he did that on purpose or what I, I assume he did because he didn't he needed to do something but he didn't want me to know what it was he was doing, but he needed to do it to me, which later on I found out what exactly he said, because I was ready at another point, 10 years later. But at that point, I was not ready. I was not ready to know what I know now. And after he finished, he told me that, that I would, am going to go with Jesus, and Jesus was there, and I embraced him as well. I looked into his eyes. I saw the smile on his face. I embraced his flesh as well. And we went back towards the beginning of the room. Now, remember how I told you that the foyer and the, the hallway were like an owl? Well, that's because there's a room on the other side of the hallway in, that's in this larger room and it's a place where you can go sit down and just talk. So Jesus tells me to sit and I sit and he, he says you can have three questions. And like honestly, I was so full of questions. I was like, okay. He says, think about what you're going to ask me. And I was like, well, what about this? And what about that? And, then, and like, and my, my questions were like a bunch. And I was 26 years old at the time, so forgive me. But my questions were a group of small questions within a larger question. And he was patient. And we talked for quite a while. And he told me things and um, about my life. And about my wife that I had not met yet. And about what he wanted me to do. And he talked about my past. And one of the things he said about my past is something that I think is really beneficial for people to know. Which is that he allowed me to go through all of the things that I went through. And that he allowed that for his wife's purpose. That I might be made into the servant that he needs me to be. And as hard as that is to hear, because as hard as this life has been for me, I can accept it because I know that it was his will that I went through the abuse and the neglect 
where I had to turn to. Well, I turned to drugs, and that wasn't working out for me, so I turned to him. And he took all those drugs away, which, by the way, when I was, when I wrote that letter, I said, if you'll heal me and show me the truth. Well, when I asked God if, if Joseph Smith was a true prophet and the Holy Spirit burned through me like hot oil, I didn't tell you this, but the drug addictions that I had at the time, they were all gone. God took them all away. So anyway, Jesus and I get done talking, and then, um, I, you know, I walk to the door, and I exit the temple, and then I am flying at, like, the speed of light, or the speed of thought, back to my truck, and, like, I get into my truck, and I'm like, what just happened? And, like, I was so completely exhausted, but I had enough energy, and I just wrote all of the things that happened and then I passed out and you know what that was in 2003 I didn't really share the experiences a whole lot I didn't share them publicly I did tell some family members I did tell some friends I wanted people to know that these things still happen So I made videos. In 2008, there's YouTube videos of me. And I'm like 400 pounds and I have no facial hair and my hair is really short and I look really dorky. And back then, YouTube only lets you do like 15 minute videos, 10 to 15 minute videos. So I had to like hurry up and, and you know, condense it down and share and I, I would always be like I knew this guy who had this experience let me tell you about the experience because Paul he said I knew a man in Christ above 13 or 14 years ago whatever it was who you know who was caught up to the third heaven you know so he and then he was talking about his own experience but he you know kind of was not wanting to share that it was him. And at the time, I believed the LDS church because they would say, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine, which means don't talk to people in your congregation about your spiritual experiences or deep doctrine. You know, it which drives me nuts because, like, they're telling, basically telling their members that they're swine, which is not okay. But anyway, so I shared this experience in this YouTube video as though I heard about it. And I'm pretty sure I can find those videos again. That The links are still good as far as I know. <clears throat> and actually, I 
I think I've screen recorded it and put it up on uh, my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash God is my compass. But anyway, so, um, so I had this experience and I continued to learn and to grow. God gave me visions. He took me up in the spirit. He gave me dreams. He gave me written revelation. For years and years and years. And I bit my tongue a lot at church. And I would just share whatever it was that they were talking about. And I knew that there was things that were wrong. But I was like, well, the people are just imperfect. And I would give them a pass and whatever. And I continued in the church until 2013. And for some reason, I knew all about the Adam-God doctrine, but I didn't know that it was forbidden knowledge. No idea. I was so uh, unique. Yeah, I was so naive. And I was talking with my in-laws, and I, I talked with a couple other people, but I found out very quickly that you are not supposed to talk about the Adam Gunn doctrine. <laughs> anyway, so the state president calls me in and he's like, you believe in polygamy? Because I've been telling my mom, yeah, my mother-in-law, yeah, I believe in those things. Doesn't mean I'm going to live it. You know, you believe in polygamy? And you believe in the Adam God doctrine? I'm like, Brigham Young taught it. Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, I know you're not supposed to share deeper things at church because people aren't ready for it. But, like, I wasn't teaching it at church. And then he made inquiry about my experiences, which my mother-in-law, I'm sure, was the one that did it. She told him about these things. And I said, yeah, like... I was taken up, this happened, and I didn't tell him, I don't think I told him about the Father and the Son, but I did tell him about the experience in 95 in the Salt Lake Temple. Which, by the way, in 2004, I was commanded by the Father to write a letter and send it to President Hinckley, and I drew, drew diagrams. I was very, very detailed. And um, I knew that's what he was going to ask about. I kept this binder, and I have that letter with me. And it has off, like, since I sent it to the uh, the church headquarters, they, like, called my stake president on a Thursday, and he, and he said, hey, somebody wants to come, uh, wants to meet you. Can you please be to sac- the sacrament meeting room 30 minutes before sacrament starts because somebody wants to come meet you? So I'm there the next Sunday, and it was El Pomperi, and he came in, and he wanted to meet me, and he wanted to talk with me. And like the last thing he said, he slapped me on the back, and he said, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. And I was like, what does that even mean? But I was like so impressed. And it was kind of cool, because like it was a singles ward, and my first wife was with me when we were still dating, and she forgot her glasses, so she couldn't see who it was. And she was like, who's that? I'm like, it's all Tom Perry. <laughs> She's like, no way. And anyway, but like, I'd run into him before. 
squeezed my ex-wife and I, the one that was with me before we got married, we'd go to the Joseph Smith Memorial Building all the time after music and the spoken word and go to church with her great uncle, who was Gordon B. Hinckley, at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. So he slaps me on the back, he says, well, God's one that chooses prophets, because we sure don't. And all of these singles people in my ward are walking in and seeing Al Tom Perry standing there talking to Mark Lickenwalter. And then he, like, he actually spoke at our meeting. And while they were singing the last hymn, he actually got up and walked out, and he waved at me, and left, right? Well, I told my state president in 2013, here, this is from the church's archives. Here's the archive numbers. Here's the first presidency number. Here's the general vault number. You can talk to Al Palm Perry about these things. He's interviewed me about them. He, this man was red in the face and angry and did not care. He was angry about the Adam God doctrine. He told me I was a bald-faced liar, that I couldn't have those experiences, that the only person who could have that kind of experience is the prophet of the church, who at the time was Thomas Monson. But Thomas Monson knew me too because I used to date one of his great nieces. In fact, she got revelation and told me that God told her that I was supposed to be her or her husband. And she was nice, and I liked her. But it never—I just—I was more interested in Rebecca than her. Anyway, but. Uh, I was scheduled for a disciplinary council so I could be excommunicated. Unless I recanted. And even though he could call and get an interview with Al Tom Perry, and Al Tom Perry knew exactly who I was, he refused. Now, at the time, we lived in upstate New Hampshire, and I had to drive down to Brockton, Massachusetts to get my truck, to drive my truck. And then later on, I transferred over to um, Hartfield, Connecticut. Or I think it was Hartfield. Anyway, it was in Connecticut. And I was an over-the-road truck driver for FedEx. And we would leave out on Sunday night and we would usually get home on Friday morning or Friday evening and we would have Saturday and Sunday off. And for some reason we couldn't get back in time and I called the state president and I said, hey, I'm trying to get back for this trial but I'm stuck and I cannot get home. Can we please make the trial a different date and he says nope you're getting excommunicated and like no trial 
Like, he's already made his mind up. He's going to just start to communicate me without even looking at any of the evidence. And I, I have no way to, like, be at this thing. And I was so upset. And I was weeping and I was crying to God. And I was like, why is this happening to me? Because I was, I was ignorant. I didn't know. I knew that there were problems, but I didn't know the out-of-God doctrine was a problem, and I didn't know that, like, the state president or anybody would really freak out about my experiences. They really did happen. But it made this man so angry, and I wasn't able to attend my trial. And I was bitterly weeping questioning God, why is this happening to me? And he came to me. Again, no, he came to me this time. I didn't go to him. And he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> But I was obedient, and I knelt down before him, and I said, Father, who am I? And he took me up in the spirit again. And I saw a vast congregation of angels. And we came down like we're flying down above this congregation. I'm looking down on everything, and I'm in the spirit. And there is this platform, and in front of the platform, there is a, a, a group of 12, and then on the platform, there is the Father, and then to his right, which would be my left, is Jesus Christ. And then to the right of the Father, which would be his left, is another man, and I know that that is the Holy Ghost. And God tells me, this is a vision of the pre-existence. And he tells me, this is me, you know, this is Jesus, and this is Lucifer. Which I was like, what? Lucifer? What are you talking about? Why is he standing at a throne next to you at a platform, on a platform? And later on, I was taught that, you know, the, the father is called the morning star and that he comes in the morning of the history of, of creation, that the Redeemer, God II, is the bright morning star and he comes at the noon of the history of creation, which he did, and that the evening star is God the witness of the Holy Ghost and he comes into mortality in the evening of the history of creation. And that, that Lucifer was God the witness or the Holy Ghost. But he rebelled. He disrespected the Father. He disrespected the Son. He rebelled. 
he thought that he should have been the one to be the Redeemer. But he was not chosen to be the Redeemer. He was chosen to be the witness. And that the man that was chosen to be the Redeemer, he'd actually had hard disagreements with because of what they went through in prior mortal probation. And I saw Lucifer fight against the father and the son with testimonies and words. And I saw him lead away almost the majority of the hosts of heaven. And I saw the elect go among the hosts of heaven that had followed Lucifer and teach them and bring them back over to the plan of salvation. I also saw a division among the the mighty and strong ones who were generals in the armies of heaven and there was about a 50% split between Lucifer and Jesus, or Yeshua. I saw the Father strip Lucifer of his name and his title, which means bearer of white, Hillel, or in Latin, Lucifer, and he became Hasatan, or Satan. And he and those who followed him were cast out. After everything happened, after a third of the hosts of heaven were cast out, Satan's not there anymore, so he doesn't see it. But he knew that I was standing among the, they who are mighty and strong, who are the generals and the armies of heaven. And the Father chose me to take the place of God the witness, or Lucifer. To fill the vacancy that had been lost. That is why I have seen the Father and the Son face to face. And that is why I have embraced him in the flesh. And that is why God has shown me so many things. That's why he's given me revelation. And that's why he called me his final prophet. He came at the very beginning of the history of this earth provide bodies for us for our spirits to dwell in the redeemer came in the meridian of time in the noon of the history of this earth to make a way for us to be redeemed from the fall and I come at the end of the history of this celestial earth to teach they who had been weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast and to set the house of God in order. That is who I am.
in this book that I'm going to be reading, probably for the rest of this week, it talks about what the prophet Qumran saw in his visions, physical descriptions, characteristics, a whole bunch of stuff. And we're going to get into it. And I have created a poll at Facebook.com. Well, it's my group on Facebook. LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions. About which... Which book you want me to cover next. And I created that poll this morning... And it's Wednesday, March 2nd. And only one person voted, and he voted three times, and only one of his votes was on the list of books that I said, you know, hey, choose from these books. If you have any other books that are online um, that are free to read online, you know, I can read those. It's not a big deal. Fair use covers it. You know, but put the links in the, in the comments below, and he didn't do that. But he put, he added two options to the polls. But only one of those books is uh, a book on the on the list that I gave to everyone, which was Holy Priest Volume Four, which is a book that I'm not reading again because it took me I don't know a month or two or two and a half months, or whatever it was, to get through that book. And that book's all about polygamy. And we just went over that. And I think he thought it was funny to do that, since I'm all like, I'm not doing any more books on polygamy right now. I'm done with polygamy. And he chooses the one book, Holy Priesthood Volume 4, that talks about polygamy. No. Sorry. No. Ha, 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 nice joke. And then the other two books that he put down are, you know, he didn't put the links down, so I'm like, whatever. But uh, nobody voted other than this one guy. You know, and I, I think that maybe, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I feel like, you know, if nobody cares, why am I wasting my time? Other than to make it so that you're beyond, I don't know, you're judged. I, I don't even know. And I don't care. I don't care. But I waste a lot of time trying to teach these things to people who don't care. And, you know, I don't know. If people don't want to vote on it. I mean, there's 4,000-something people in the group, and it's an active group. Nobody cares. Like, I don't know what to tell you people. I am so far spent. And you know what? I do enjoy reading these books, and I enjoy refreshing, you know, and learning and all of that. And maybe I'll just keep doing it for that reason. But I have been doing this since God told me to start my first radio show podcast, internet radio show podcast, January of 2000 and 
14. And since then, I've done so many podcasts. And I honestly don't know that it does any good. Because all it does is I get mocked, I get ridiculed, I get told, like I got told last night on the Zoom call, oh shucks boy, it's all of the devil. You know, like, I've had death threats over this stuff. I get hate because of this stuff. I have been fired from jobs because they find out about my claims and I lose my livelihood because of this stuff. I have lost friends and family members because of this stuff. And I don't see the reward or benefit to to putting myself out there over the years and sharing these things openly where I have lost jobs, I've lost friends, I've lost money, I've been threatened on so many different levels, including with my life. And I continue to do it, and I don't know what the benefit is. So anyway, let's uh, see if Kim is on the line and see if Emma has anything to say, and we'll figure it out after that. But yeah, we're going to be reading The Final Prophet, but this clip is getting too long, so here we go. Okay, well, that's the end of that. I recorded that quite a while ago. Oh, we didn't have anybody in the chat room. No questions or comments. And we didn't have anybody in the studio. Nobody called in, so. So in the program for tonight, I got to get going to work anyway, so. I'll be back on. Friday night at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time with another episode of Zion's Redemption Radio Network or Fundamentally Mormon. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. God bless and goodbye.